Welcome to another episode of Talking Terror. I'm Andrew Silk, and I'm standing in for the regular host, John Morrison. Um, today's date is the 29th of September, 2017. So if any major events have happened after this date, we won't be able to talk about it on the show, and that is the reason why you won't hear about it. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L, and tweet us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Also, please check out our website at uel.ac.uk slash Turk, T-E-R-C. Um, it has details about everything that we get up to, the research that we're focused on, and links to all of our podcasts. It also has details on the courses we teach, including the MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, and our exciting new book series with IB Taurus. But first, let me introduce today's guest. It is... A pleasure to um, have an old friend, Dr. Kumar Ramakrishna, um, be with us today on Talking Terror. Uh, Kumar is a tenured associate professor and head of policy studies, as well as coordinator of the National Security Studies Program in the office of the Executive Deputy Chairman, S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or SIS. And prior to this, he was the head of the Center of Excellence for National Security, SENSIN, or SIS, between 2006 and 2015. Among his many achievements, Dr. Ramakrishna has co-edited The New Terrorism, Anatomy, Trends and Counter-Strategies in 2002, as well as After Bali, The Threat of Terrorism in Southeast Asia in 2004. His first single-authored book, Emergency Propaganda, The Winning of Malayan Hearts and Minds, 1948-1958, to was published in 2002 and was described by the International History Review as required reading for historians of Malaya and for those whose task is to counter insurgents, guerrillas and terrorists. There are further details on Dr. Ramakrishna's many publications and his extensive research in the area of terrorism, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. Um, but to start us off today, Kumar, first question, how did you get involved in research on terrorism and counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, all the rest of that? What was the attraction and how did it happen? Sure. Uh, thanks, Andrew. Well, uh, great question. <clears throat> it's been a long journey, I guess, for myself. I actually uh, started life as a historian. Uh, in fact, I still consider myself in many ways still, still a historian. I, I looked at British propaganda during the Malayan emergency and uh, that was essentially uh, looking at the uh, campaign by the British colonial authorities as well as the, the later Malayan, independent Malayan government and of course the, uh, the government in Singapore uh, against the Communist Party of Malaya during the period in Malayan and Singapore history called the Malayan Emergency, essentially from 1948 to 1960. Uh, there was the first emergency and uh, there was a resumption, uh, the so-called second emergency from 1969 to 1989 with the signing of the peace uh, agreements. Uh, so after September 11, I was asked by my uh, then uh, boss to sort of like retool in the sense that, okay, you have looked at the, 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 the communist terrorists of the past, so now you have to like see whether you can apply any of the those ideas you, you picked up in studying the Malayan case to this new species of terrorism. The, the, at, that, at that time, you were talking about the radical Islamists. So that was uh, after September 11, and well, since then, I've been looking at uh, counter-terrorism and counter-extremism. 
uh, and, um, and eventually uh, that's how I sort of come to this point in time. I mean, it's a fascinating background. I mean, the, the, the Malayan case is often held up as one of these examples of, uh, of a counterinsurgency campaign that worked. I mean, is that the assessment you came to as well, or, or did you conclude something different after you'd analysed it? No, I agree with you. I think uh, most uh, historians and analysts who look at the emergency in Malaya would say that it was one of the relatively few cases in, a, in, in our history where the counterinsurgents actually won, they, they defeated the insurgents. And of course, uh, this is the Malayan case is where General Gerald Templer, who was the High Commissioner uh, in Malaya at the time, uh, coined, was said to have coined the term winning hearts and minds. Mm. He wasn't the guy that actually coined it, but he, it was popular, popularized as, you know, associated with General Templer. And of course, uh, if you look at the, the historiography of the emergency, I mean, uh, there's a debate amongst historians, including myself, in that particular field about you know, what was the General Templar's actual role. You know? uh, he was always seen to be the, 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 the key guy that turned the tide, so to speak, against the Malayan communists uh, between 1952 and 1954. Because before 1948 and 52, <clears throat> the communists were, were winning. But General Templar came in and uh, essentially uh, introduced measures which uh, ultimately led to uh, support for the communists drying up and importantly uh, confidence in the government institutions uh, being strengthened and ultimately uh, after he left the, his successors uh, brought the conflict to a close and so the i would say that the emergency and uh, the role of uh, uh, the counterinsurgent in targeting not so much the, the, the physical infrastructure of the insurgents, uh, but the, 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 the supporting uh, civil infrastructure in terms of the, the population confidence, in terms of the, the, the people. That was the key. Winning hearts and minds of the people ultimately led to the drying up of support for the insurgents. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fair to say that uh, this uh, sort of uh, analysis kinds of, kind of guides my thinking even today. When you talk about extremism and terrorism in our part of the world, in Southeast Asia, I would, I would dare say even in other parts of the world. Because I think that if you look at uh, how uh, many countries have conducted the war against terror to, uh, since September 11, there's been a fair bit of emphasis on uh, hard power, physical force, combat power. And I would say that since the mid-2000s in my own analysis, there's been increasing recognition that uh, the hard power, while important to deal with a real-time physical threat, is not enough. It needs to be supplemented by what some people, some people call soft power, uh, which essentially deals with the underlying conditions that give rise to the extremism that fuels terrorism in the first place. So you need to have both. You need to have hard power to deal with a physical real-time threat, and that has to be supplemented and complemented by soft power measures, which deal with the underlying conditions. And by that, I mean uh, good governance, the rule of law, uh, socioeconomic factors. And uh, ultimately, I don't think you can run away from the role of uh, extremist ideology. You've got to counter extremist ideology because if you don't, uh, you may disrupt uh, hundreds of cells, you may arrest hundreds of uh, terrorist leaders, but because of the power of regeneration due to the continued uh, spread 
of the extremist ideology through social media. That's what we face right now. You will always be facing replacements. There will be regeneration in the terrorist movements. So ultimately, as we are fighting the uh, physical threat through hard power measures, we need soft power measures as well to ensure that we have a holistic, integrated approach. Mm. I, I, I mean, I think it's 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 the assessment that you that you make there is is spot on. Um, and one of the things that strikes me is is do you think that the fact that you started off by studying the Malaya campaign and the, the Malaya conflict um, in a sense gave you almost an advantage in terms of com- when it came time to study current Islamist threats and, and the conflicts connected to that um, as compared to somebody who maybe started studying after 9-11 and their first introduction to studying terrorism and counterterrorism was looking at Al-Qaeda or looking mm. at a, a group like Islamic State? I think it's a great question. Uh the first article I actually ever wrote uh, after September 11, in fact, very soon after September 11, uh, it was essentially co-written uh, with my former boss, Mr. Barry Desker. And uh, we were talking about indirect strategy. And I got to say, Andrew, I mean, the, the, I was looking at this new phenomenon at that time, of course, relatively new phenomenon of the so-called new religiously motivated terrorism. And it was very clear to me that to deal with these guys, of course, you have to deal with a physical threat. But it's obviously something else going on, you know. It's what, what, what is motivating these people? What, what is driving them, driving uh, 19 young men to sort of uh, end their lives in such a, uh, such a fashion, flying aircraft into buildings? I mean, there's, it's not just a physical dimension. There is an ideological dimension. There are, there are other things which we need to know about. And, and so I, in that uh, particular article, Indirect Strategy, uh, forging an indirect strategy in Southeast Asia. I was influenced by the work of the French theorist uh, André Beaufre, who, like uh, uh, Britain's uh, little heart, right, was talking about indirect strategy. Whole idea being that, look, I mean, you will have to deal with the physical manifestation of the threat, but at the same time, you need to go around it. You need to target the, what uh, is the source of the physical threat. Whatever that may be, I mean, it may be socioeconomic conditions, it may be political factors. Uh, it depends on the national context, right? But ultimately, there is something which is giving rise to the grievances, uh, which are then being uh, uh, exploited by uh, an ideology to sort of uh, generate the extremism that is giving rise to the terrorist threat in the first place. So, it needs to be indirect. If you if you just focus on direct strategies, which basically emphasizes hard power, it will not be enough. As I mentioned before, you will always be uh, having to deal with the threat. You need to uh, do something about the regenerative potential of the terrorist groups, which are being uh, nourished by uh, extremist ideology, which exploits objective uh, grievances. Absolutely, absolutely. All of the guests who who come on Talking Terror um, uh, send us beforehand a selection of articles or or books that they have found particularly influential in in their in their own work, as well as highlighting some of the the, the key uh, publications that they themselves have written. And now, in your case, in terms of the the the, uh, the the research that's influenced you, you have three really interesting choices. And and the first one, I have to confess is also one that I put down on my list of three oh, things oh, which, which, which um, influenced <laughs> me. So what can I say? Uh, great minds think alike or, or, or fools seldom differ. Um, uh, we'll, we'll let the listeners judge. But it's 
Walter Reich's classic yeah, book, absolutely. Origins of Terrorism. Yeah. Um, why, uh, um, uh, it might sound like a silly question, but yeah, t- tell me why this for you was, was, is one of the key. This um, book blew my mind. I mean, it was like written well, well, well before September 11. Uh, it was very much uh, uh, ahead of its time. I mean, just look at the title, uh, Origins of Terrorism, and he, does, he identifies three areas, like uh, ideologies, theology, psychologies. That's it. I mean, he hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you want to understand uh, the evolving trends in terrorism, you can't just look at what these guys are doing in the physical domain. You have to look at what's actually uh, motivating them, what's driving them. Is it theologies? Is it uh, uh, ideologies? Uh, what is the role of psychology, you know? So in a, in a very uh, uh, elegant way, he sort of encapsulated the, the entire direction of that book and the contributions in that particular edited volume were amazing. And, uh, and I still think that uh, I would uh, recommend this to all my students and, and it's, it's a classic. And I really, really still think that it's worth a read. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding my head here as, as you're saying this. I couldn't agree more with you. I think it is a classic um, uh, and still, even now deserves a lot of attention. Um, another classic which you've highlighted as your second book is Mark Jorgens Meyer's uh, Terror in the Mind of God. Yeah. Um, and, and I think another great choice. Um, yeah. and, and, and what, what was your thinking in, in picking this one? Well, I actually heard uh, Mark uh, speak for the first time uh, about 13 years ago in uh, Arizona. And uh, it's a marvelous lecture. Uh, since then, uh, uh, he's been to Singapore and we, we invited him and and uh, Mark's approach uh, is uh, very much uh, in uh, the sociological tradition. And, but the thing is, he was one of the first people to actually, to, in my view, deep dive into the potential within a religion which could be exploited by extremists to fuel terrorism. Uh, I mean, religion, you look at religion, I mean, it's, uh, there are other scholars who talk about the ambivalence or the sacred, right? I mean, religion, one would think, uh, talks about universal peace and harmony. But yet, there are these potentials, you know, within religion to uh, create a kind of us and them thinking. And not only just uh, do that at a cognitive level, but also provide the uh, emotional uh, intensity to drive extremist interpretations of uh, religious doctrines that can then fuel the terrorism in the, in the physical domain. So uh, Jürgen Meyer's book uh, opened my eyes uh, as to how that could happen, how religion could uh, fuel uh, extremism and terrorism. And he gave many examples. And one of the value, uh, one of the uh, excellent uh, uh, takeaways I had from that particular book was he didn't just look at one particular religion because, you know, the, the, the press was talking about, you know, uh, Islamism and, you know, generating the idea that, you know, it's just associated with one particular group, but that's not true. That's not true because, and Jürgen's Meyer shows that, you know, it's these sorts of uh, violent potentials exist across all the religions, you know, particularly the monotheistic ones. And that's a very important lesson to sort of uh, put out there because uh, it is a way of countering uh, what, one of, for example, the currently there's an issue with Islamophobia, for example. And uh, I think uh, when we look at uh, people like Jürgen's Meyer, uh, it helps to sort of counteract that kind of uh, simplistic thinking that, you know, all, all this violence, you know, is just associated with one particular religion, you know, and 
it's much more complicated than that. And I think Jürgen's mayor helped to drive that point home for me. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think it's easy to forget that this book was actually written, published before 9-11. Exactly. You know, it was, it was very much kind of ahead of the curve in terms of anticipating what the big threat was going to be before everybody was yeah, had jumped absolutely. on the bandwagon. Yeah. And your next choice is a, is an interesting one. It's one I'm less familiar with. Uh, James Waller's book, uh, Becoming Evil, ah, How yes. Ordinary People Commit Genocide and Mass Killing. Mm. Tell, tell me about why this had an impact. Yeah, uh, Waller is a uh, social psychologist and uh, his, his book actually uh, introduced me to this whole debate uh, in, the, in relation to this question, what makes people do bad things? For example, I mean, of course, what makes individuals commit terrorism, right? So he introduced me to the debate uh, between the uh, dispositionists and the uh, situationists. The dispositionists would say that, well, bad people do bad things. Whereas the situationists would say, well, actually, you and me and uh, Andrew, we are good people, but under certain circumstances, under the so-called power of the situation, we can also do bad things. And so there's this uh, big debate, actually, which uh, opened up for me about, you know, so what actually causes people to do bad things? I mean, like terrorism. I mean, is it, is it, are they psychopaths? I mean, are they sociopaths? Or, you know, are they relatively ordinary people that under severe pressures... Uh, group pressures, small group pressures, and other fact, uh, other factors, they become de-individuated, and engage in behavior which later they would regret, including engaging in terrorist acts. And I think this is very important because uh, it helps one to sort of like uh, eschew uh, mono-dimensional explanations, like oh, you know, there's something wrong with the individual. Mm. Uh, one should also, but the, I mean, uh, Waller points out that you know. It's not just the individual, it's the context, the social context within which that individual is situated. Because these pressures are also important in determining whether or not somebody is going to engage in terrorist behavior. And, uh, I mean, there's a saying uh, in, in this particular debate between the situationist and the dispositionist, it doesn't matter who you are, what matters is where you are. That will help to explain, you know, mm -hmm. why some of these individuals engage in terrorist behavior. Yeah, and I mean, it, this debate it, it has never gone away from terrorism studies either. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's the whole idea about, is there a terrorist Personality, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and judging from what you're saying there, I, I'm guessing your conclusion is that there isn't a straightforward terrorist per personality. Or I don't think there is a straightforward answer on that, you know. And I believe that it's a, you know, Let's put it this way, there are the other scholars like, uh, I remember Cass Sunstein, he's uh, one of his excellent books, Going to Extremes, which I wanted to put in there, but he only <laughs> gave me three choices, Andrew. <laughs> but anyway, Sunstein says that, you know, there are, there, are, there are low threshold individuals who are relatively easily manipulated in a group setting, and there are high threshold individuals who are less so. Uh, why? You know, and uh, he references other the work of other scholars like... Uh, Philip Zimbardo, mm. Stanford Prison Experiment, you know, and uh, uh, Milgram as well. So there's a, I mean, that, uh, uh, this book uh, for me, Waller, introduced me to a whole vista, new vista of research, which was really fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and 
just for the listeners' benefit, links to all three of those um, uh, of those books are up on the Turk website, and um, you can follow the links to to find out more about all of them. And you can also follow links to the three pieces of research of Kumar's research, which he has highlighted as 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 of particular interest. And the first of these is. Radical Pathways, Understanding Muslim Radicalization in Indonesia, which was published in 2009. Can you tell me more about this research? Yeah, sure. Uh, this was actually a book uh, which I tried to analyze the motivations of the Bali bombers from Jama Islamia, the Southeast Asian terrorist organization. They were Al-Qaeda linked at some point uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, I studied the cell that uh, bombed Bali in October two, 12 October 2002. And I wanted to move away from uh, single factor explanations that you know there's something wrong with uh, these particular individuals, uh, and at the same time I was I didn't want to I didn't really buy into those arguments that were saying that well structural factors uh, explained Bali you know, so I was influenced actually by uh, among other scholars the work of Alex Schmidt who mm. who talks about. Uh, why, if you really want to understand the radicalization process, you need to look at, uh, you know, at least three levels. You need, of course, there's the individual micro level, right? There's the meso level, uh, the the organizational, the space around the individual, and ultimately, it's the micro level, the, the structural factors. So, if you want to understand radicalization, you have to uh, you have to look at all three uh, all three layers in in relation to a particular group of people. So that's why Radical Pathways uh, was all about that. And uh, the core of Radical Pathways is, uh, is uh, what I call the RP framework, Radical Pathways framework, where essentially I was looking at uh, uh, concentric circles where the, the, the biggest circle was human nature, uh, which is uh, my argument being that uh, uh, all of us are uh, groupish by uh, inclination. So... We are ten. We, we tend as human beings to think in terms of us then thinking our and in terms of uh, our in group and out group. So already, you know, even without any intervention of extremist ideology, we already have this us them thinking potential, which can be exploited. Uh, then of course there was a, a smaller circle called culture, and you know there are some cultures which are collectivist, others are more indi- individualist, and argument being that uh, collectivist cultures tend to follow the leaders relatively uncritically. There's this great uh, respect for uh, seniors and uh, sometimes uh, it is difficult in a collectivist culture to actually put your hand up and say, excuse me, sir, but I don't agree with that because of the social pressure. Right? Uh, and if you look at the Pali bombers, you actually see some of these uh, dynamics within the, within the cell. You know, they, they felt, some of these guys felt uh, a bit of uh, discomfort about the plans, but they didn't feel strong enough or... or uh, confident to, to sort of like raise questions. But later when you took them out of the group, they, w- they would actually ex- express remorse. Mm-hmm. So there were some of these in- interesting factors going on. And the final circle was what I, what I call the situated individual personality. And this is where I was influenced by the likes of Waller, you know, about how peer pressure actually uh, influenced uh, particular individuals. But I also uh, felt that, you know, uh, it's not just uh, so, so the social pressure alone, some of these individuals already had, in my view, uh, a certain uh, predilection for violence. They had a history of uh, uh, antisocial behavior. Uh, so the Radical Pathways Framework is an attempt to sort of draw attention to the various levels, various factors that, that should be considered 
and trying to analyze why a particular cell of people radicalize. It was just one of my uh, early, earlier attempts to sort of contribute to the literature. Mm. I mean, one thing which has struck me about your research is that a lot of it is set within a particular regional context, yeah. whether it's Indonesia or, 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 or Southeast Asia or, or something like that. And it, it's pitched in those terms, but actually when you read it, um, at the heart are general theories. So mm. it's, a, it's a general approach. And my own view is, is that what you're saying actually applies not just in Indonesia, for example, mm. or, or, or uh, Southeast Asia, but actually applies in the Middle East or implies in Europe or in the UK or elsewhere mm. um, if people are willing to, to, to kind of look at it. And, and one of the things which, which I think has sometimes struck me, do you feel that because mm. it has the regional setting, mm-hmm. that, that that means that to a degree it's ignored by, let's say, scholars in, 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 in North America aren't paying attention to possibly the, some of the, the gems that are, are buried mm-hmm. in it about you know, general approaches to radicalization and counter-radicalization. That's a, that's a great question, Andrew. Uh, uh, perhaps, I, I don't know myself, but, uh, well, I do know that uh, while I'm, of course, trying to target the uh, a specialist audience who are interested in the, the terrorist situation in Southeast Asia, I and uh, that would include uh, not just Southeast Asia, but uh, for example, Australia as well. Australia is very much uh, interested in what's going on in Southeast Asia. Uh, I, I would agree that uh, in, in, look, my approach has been influenced very much by many of these scholars who are well-known in the West. You know, So I would agree with you that uh, at a certain level of generalization, uh, some of these approaches which I use would, would I would imagine, uh, have some uh, applicability, uh, say, in the Middle East or in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. <clears throat> in fact, one of the potentially useful exercises downstream would be to like combine uh, you know, the, perspe- uh, uh, the work of uh, different scholars looking at different geographical regions to see what, uh, you know, whether we can come up with a more general approach that is uh, cross, uh, dis- uh, cross-regional. Mm. No, I agree. It's, it's kind of the argument that people make that the area doesn't have this overarching general theory of yeah. terrorism and radicalization and, 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 and kind of is that a problem or not. But I do think uh, for the interested listeners that your work is, is particularly worth attention, even if it, it, it might initially appear to be just focused on a particular case study or a particular group. What you say is actually um, has much greater applicability. And, and that ties into your next article as well, which is the growth of ISIS extremism in Southeast Asia its ideological and cognitive features and possible policy responses from 2017. Yeah. Can you tell me about this piece of work? Well, as we know, right now uh, in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines uh, in particular, there is a, a conflict uh, going on in the Islamic city of Marawi in Mindanao, one of the, uh, the key Islamic cities in the southern Philippines. Uh, a battle between the ISIS-backed militants in, in the south of the Philippines and the armed forces of the Philippines, which is symptomatic of uh, what some of us in Southeast Asia have been concerned for at least a year, which is as ISIS begins to draw down its presence in uh, Syria and Iraq, uh, all the foreign fighters involved in that conflict will go back to where they came from. I mean, the, 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 the Europeans will go back to Europe, Africans to Africa, and the Southeast Asians, by some es- estimates, there are about more than a thousand uh, Southeast Asian fighters have gone to Syria and they are going to come back. Well, some will stay, right? Because martyrdom is what they want. But many, for various reasons, will come back. And they will bring with them uh, uh, the uh, transnational networks, the uh, expertise in bomb making and weapons 
used and importantly the uh, ability to radicalize other young people in our region with extremist ideology which they have imbibed in uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, and we already see this in the uh, southern Philippines. So this article was actually written uh, before the, the so-called Marawi crisis which began in uh, May this year. But it is, it's an essentially an, uh, an attempt to sort of uh, draw policy attention to uh, trends that are happening in Southeast Asia and which policymakers should begin to pay attention to. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole idea that, well, ISIS, as it draws down its presence in Iraq and Syria, will want to spread its uh, uh, ideology through social media to other parts of the world, you know. And, and the Southern Philippines has, even before the incidents of uh, this year, have identified Mindanao, Southern Philippines, as a potential area where uh, they can set up uh, a, a, a satellite of their so-called caliphate. So that that's what I was trying to do in that article. Mm. And I mean, one of the what what struck me, one of the big themes in this article is you you have you know there's a serious discussion around the issue of violent extremism. Ah yes. And then <laughs> non-violent extremism, yeah, yeah. and what do you do about? Nonviolent extremism, and that's a, a debate, for example, that is um, attracted a huge amount of attention in the yeah. UK. Um, uh, you know, how does a government deal with nonviolent extremism, yeah. and about you know concerns about the nonviolent extremism providing a slippery slope into violent action? Yeah. And this is something that really gets an awful lot of attention in this article. Mm. Can you expand on that? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we have this big discussion right now in Southeast Asia precisely on the same issue. I mean, I mean, like from a policy point of view, do we just go after the violent extremists or should we begin to like look further upstream at uh, uh, extremism per se? You know, I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a, there is a uh, relatively well-known uh, uh, terrorist leader in Indonesia who was the... Uh, uh, spiritual leader of the Jamaat Islamia, an Indonesian. Uh, and he was asked by a journalist once, he was asked by a journalist, right? I mean, why do you say such a hurtful things? Why do you, in your messages, you know, you create this us and them mindset, so why do you do such things, you know, in public? And his, his response was, look, I am just a craftsman selling knives. I am not responsible for how other people use those knives. So, I mean, when somebody says that sort of thing, I mean, it's kind of clear, I mean, to anybody who is relatively uh, paying attention that uh, this is not a, a very friendly guy and perhaps you should want to pay attention to him. Question is, what do you do? Uh, in Indonesia, you know, the, uh, you know they, they're actually talking about, you know, whether they want to criminalize hate speech. Uh, the security people want to do so. The parliament is uh, very careful, right? Uh, in Singapore, Malaysia, you have uh, stronger laws against such things because, uh, you know, there is concern that uh, some of these, uh, uh, it's not just a matter of uh, inciting of violence. If you incite hate, the, the assumption is, and the thinking is in policy circles, if you incite hate, mm. uh, that in, in and of itself may ultimately, well, it doesn't necessarily uh, re may result in anything, but in con in conjunction with other factors might actually result ultimately in outgroup violence. Mm. And we have some uh, history of where uh, hate speech actually did very clearly play a role in later uh, outgroup violence, whether it's for religious or communal reasons. So we have that historical background. So, but in Southeast Asia, there's this debate. 
my own view is uh, I'm with Alex Schmidt on this. Well, Schmidt uh, recently in a very, very interesting paper from about a few years ago with ICC, ICCT, right, in The Hague, he was saying that, look, you know, there's, he doesn't think that there is such a thing as non-violent extremism. He says that, look, uh, if you talk about Gandhi, people like Gandhi, you know, that's non-violence as a philosophy, as a political philosophy, which is, i.e., no matter what they do to you, you're never going to respond in violence. But, that, I mean, when you talk about extremism, it's more accurate to talk of not yet extreme uh, behavior in the sense that the only reason why some of these groups are not actually violent now is because they know uh, through a tactical analysis that they will be crushed by the authorities if they are actually violent. So they're not actually non-violent. They're more accurately described as not yet violent or not now violent. And when I looked at that, I was like saying, you know, I think he hit the nail on the head. Hmm. And in our own history in Singapore, I, I remember I mentioned the, the communist era. We, have, we are not unfamiliar with this because, uh, I mean, the communists at that time, they had uh, a dual strategy. If they could win uh, the conflict and establish a communist republic of Singapore and Malaya through force, they would do so. They tried to between 1948 and 1954. When after General Templar left and it, uh, the Communist uh, Party realized that uh, they were not going to win through force, they switched through. They switched to a strategy of urban subversion from rural insurgency in Malaya. They switched to urban subversion in uh, Singapore Island. So they penetrated students' associations, labor unions, left-wing political parties, and ultimately the their strategy at that time was, well, they will go through the constitutional route, right? Uh, but ultimately, uh, and later documentary evidence came to came to came to light. It showed that in their internal discussions, right, uh, the communists uh, that were that had influenced the uh, le uh, one of the left wing political parties in Singapore at that time, which was in basically a front for the communists, they were their calculations were if they could win through constitutional means, they would do so and, see, and secure power. But if they couldn't, if they assessed they couldn't, they would use force. So they were not yet violent extremists, mm. right? So I could actually recognize that, you know, what, what Schmidt was saying, and I totally uh, agree with it. And I think it's something which is an area which is, of course, pretty controversial, but I think there's scope for further uh, discussion and debate on, on this particular issue. And I tried to touch on that in this paper. Yeah, you, you do, and I think you have the... It, it leads to the you know the the tension is obviously the you know the freedom of speech argument. Uh, yeah. If somebody absolutely isn't advocating violence but is, is is advocating extreme views, that isn't necessarily against the law. And and I think it, it's posing a huge challenge, um, not just in Southeast Asia as you were highlighting, but yeah. in the West as well, where where yeah. it's creating all sorts of tension, and particularly in the UK because you've got you do have this shift in UK government policy that's right moving away from violent extremism to saying no 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 we need to tackle extremism mm. um, and it pushes the if you want the point of intervention or the point of action further and further upstream which which potentially has all sorts of uh, issues with it yeah absolutely I fully agree yeah. yeah excellent excellent and your third and final article which you were able to highlight is Understanding Youth Radicalization in the Age of ISIS, a Psychosocial Analysis. And can you tell me about some of yeah. the, the, the things that you focus on in this piece of work? Sure. Uh, 
I began to realize uh, about a couple of years ago that uh, actually ISIS is an international youth movement because the look at the kind of people they look they, they try to radicalize it's whether young men or young women with their the the message the extremist uh, appeal they're trying to build the the new uh, Islamist utopia right. And in order to do that, they, they try to reach out to young people because young people are idealistic. They, I mean, they are, let's face it, they're not actually emotionally mature yet. And they are, i.e., pretty vulnerable. And so I was trying to uh, explain in this particular article, which uh, I was quite happy to see uh, quite a, a couple of thousand hits since it first came out. And I think I must have hit a chord somehow. So I... <laughs> And I was basically trying to look at uh, what are the factors that uh, make young people particularly vulnerable. And I, I look at uh, individual factors in terms of uh, young people's uh, <clears throat> uh, mental, emotional development is still not uh, complete. Uh, look at the family context. Mm. You know? I mean, uh, there's a, fa a fair bit of uh, literature that suggests that uh, young people that come from uh, broken families, for example, uh, uh, tend to be uh, more vulnerable, they tend to look for father figures, they look for surrogate families, and even you can see this in Southeast Asia, that many of the, the, the militants that uh, were Jamaa Islamia leaders, they, they, they were radicalized because they were they, they were looking for father figures, mm. and they, they came across uh, father figures that were, were extremists, you know, and uh, you see this in Indonesia, you certainly see this in the, the, in the southern Philippines, you know, I've, I'm, I, one Abu Sayyaf, a former Abu Sayyaf leader, I was talking to in, in uh, a few years ago, he was saying that uh, the, the, the group he belonged to that ultimately later produced the uh, Abu Sayyaf uh, uh, militants, they were like a big family. They were like a big family. So, so, the, so I mean, young people need that kind of family structure. So, which, so, the, the, so, the, so I was looking at uh, the individual factors, looking at family context, and I was looking at societal context. And I, I, I tried to make the point that, look, if you want to have strong families, I think that is a protective factor against uh, young, young, people's, uh, young people getting radicalized. Uh, but in order to have strong families, you need to have uh, good societies. Man. By that, I mean uh, good governance, uh, economic opportunities, uh, opportunities for parents to actually do a good job, a better job of parenting. So again, it's this whole idea of, you know, it's not just the individual, but the, the family structure, the wider social structure. And this is, uh, you know, how we can uh, uh, begin to better understand uh, why young people are, it is important to sort of like uh, provide young people with the opportunities to uh, develop themselves and uh, holistically so that they will not be so easily radicalized because they are definitely being targeted by the extremists today. No, and I, I, I think... I personally would strongly recommend this article. Uh, I think that uh, the section in it on family that you've written, written about is absolutely excellent. It's one of the best um, analysis and, and, and pulling together of different yeah. strands on that that I've seen. And, and I think one of the arguments you make in it, which I found very compelling, was almost, almost the, it's the ordinary family, in inverted yeah. commas. The ordinary family is, yeah. a, is a protective factor. Yeah. Um, and you also talked in it about um, that there are windows uh, in the lives of young people and that when if you want a protective 
influence of an ordinary family makes a huge difference and yeah. if you miss that window yeah then yeah. Um, you have um, uh, you, you you have missed the the opportunity long term and that the yeah. the, the, uh, the young person is living with the consequence of that That's basically right. for for many many years afterwards um, and I, I certainly anecdotally and you know when I'm speaking to um, a lot of former radicals, and you look into the background, you do find this family factor mm. comes up again and again and again. Well, what I was trying to do in this article was to try and suggest uh, some ideas which uh, perhaps uh, other researchers uh, we, who have access to some of the data can perhaps consider you know, chewing on it and um, examining to see uh, to what extent uh, some of these ideas which I put out uh, are validated by uh, the evidence. And uh, ultimately, we need to be driven by evidence, uh, uh, what, where, the, where the evidence leads us. And so, but I think one of the things we need to do in order to push the whole uh, uh, research uh, program forward is we need ideas. We need to learn from one another. And in my own work, I've tried to sort of, uh, you know, be analytically and theoretically eclectic uh, because I really think that uh, that's the only way to go. Uh, we, 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 we need to learn from various disciplines. Uh, it's not just political science, history, Islamic studies, you know, religious studies, you know. Uh, psychology, your, your, your social psychology, your field. I mean, we, we, everybody needs to pull together. And now there's some very interesting uh, work being done by uh, neuroscientists as well. They are beginning to look at uh, brain chemistry and you know, uh, how that fact uh, should be, could be uh, a factor in uh, you know, developing... Uh, uh, vulnerabilities, you know, especially in uh, stress communities. So I actually think that there's a lot we can do uh, as a community or practitioners from dis different disciplines working together to try and push the envelope in trying to understand how people get radicalized and what, importantly, what we can do to prevent such things from happening. And so I'm, I'm very happy to be here to sort of share some of these ideas with you. Mm. I'm, I'm linked into that. I mean, how do you rate the state of terrorism studies today uh, i mean what do you think are the the big challenges and the big opportunities going forward right now that's a great question in fact uh uh i was just in oxford yesterday and uh, we were talking about this and i think one of the big challenges uh is how to translate all these great ideas uh which we have in uh, terrorism studies into digestible uh analysis which a very busy policymakers and practitioners can uh, grasp and uh, implement in an actionable fashion. Uh, we have uh, many good ideas but ultimately you always get the question from the policy community who to be fair are the guys that need to implement this, these ideas on the ground. It's like okay that's interesting but so what? I mean what do you want us to do? I think we need to narrow the theory practice gap. I think that's important. Uh, I, I I, I belong to a persuasion where I don't think it's uh, ac academics should be writing for other academics uh, uh, only. I think academics in our field, particularly terrorism studies, should be making the effort to write for the practitioners and ultimately the wider public as well. We have to get our, our analysis out there in a way which will have a very effective uh, public impact because ultimately uh, given the threats that are, you know, we, we are facing you know, as various communities, multicultural societies, whether it's in Southeast Asia or in, in the UK or in the Europe, 
uh, we need to be able to make a contribution to make our community safer. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And on that note, I want to thank you again, Kumar Ramakrishna, our today's guest on Talking Terror, uh, the UEL um, Turk Centre uh, podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you thank and you. to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, a reminder to our listeners that um, Kumar's articles, links to them are available on our website, as are links to the um, pieces of work he highlighted as being um, particularly influential in, in setting the agenda and laying the foundations for his own work. I do strongly recommend Kumar's work. Um, as I've uh, mentioned in uh, today's talk, even though it, it often seems to be placed in a particular physical or regional context, I think a lot of the insights and the uh, conclusions you reach really do have much wider um, uh, implications and much wider reach than that. So strongly recommended for all our listeners. Um, thank you for listening. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure to be here. And thank you. thanks again, Kumar. It all has right. been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank Andrew. you. Cheers.